I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, How Plants Find Their Food, The Behavioral Science Underlying Plant Nutrition, is sponsored by Yitter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yitter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yitter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Like all living organisms, plants require proper nutrition to thrive. The traditional view of plants is that they're factories that will maximize output if they're given the right inputs. This approach is often successful, but history also shows plants have survived for millions of years because they have natural abilities to feed themselves, says J.C. Cahill. The experimental plant ecologist at the University of Alberta will highlight recent research in the plant-soil relationship, discuss root movement and foraging, interactions with mycorrhizae, and a number of related topics about plant behavior. And I want to talk about nutrition. And I, and I want to do this from a different perspective than what we heard today, the soil testing, the plant tissue concentration, sort of the classical approach. And I want to talk nutrition in the context of a plant feeding itself and how a plant goes about getting its food and how that has the potential to impact what you do on the farm, uh, either now or generations from now. And I am not a farmer, but I have a lot of colleagues who are active at plant breeders. And I've been talking to breeders throughout the US and Canada on some of these issues. And there is a lot of movement towards adopting these concepts into new varieties. The breeding process is very long. We know we're not talking two years. We know we're talking decades with the regulations and all that sort of stuff, but it's happening now. And so aside from me doing the actual breeding, I'm working with some of these groups and know other people who are too, because the potential for agriculture to use the natural biology of the plant to enhance nutrition is huge. Because what we're really getting at is if, if a plant has the ability to find its food, and to use that food efficiently, then it's wasting less energy, which means there's more yield or higher planting densities or something. And in addition to that, there's the potential for less inputs if the plant is able to get those inputs more efficiently. Less inputs obviously is money, but it's also less runoff. And so there's very little potential downside to finding ways to enhance what a plant can naturally do. And what I'm gonna present is some of the science of what we understand. What is it that plants actually do? And I'll tell you straight off, we have a big problem, which is the big problem is we've only started figuring this out in the last few years. And not just my lab, but the research community in terms of the complexity of what plants are actually able to do is new work. I'm gonna talk about a lot of studies that just came out. So we are literally at the edge of knowledge in the context of what plants are able to do and so how that applies to the farm, I, there is no promise that it's gonna change what you do next season. But this is where things are going, and I think there's value, and hopefully you find there to be value in understanding what people like me are trying to discover so that people like you are able to use that for the betterment of your family and as well as for society. And so I'm setting up again with the same framework that I did yesterday of the classic view of plants as factories. And from what I've heard here, uh, and, and in other groups, this isn't a bad understanding of modern agriculture. No-till or conventional-till agriculture, it's still a basic idea that we have a system, and we're trying to manipulate that system in a way to give us a desired outcome. That's a great idea. I mean, that, that is what we want to do. And so the way we can make our factories more efficient is to understand what the buttons and levers are. 
and to understand how when you tweak one lever, what happens on another side of the system. What's nice about the no-till approach is that you're recognizing there are actually more levers than just simply inputs. And that the way that you're using the management practices is enhancing the choices of what you're doing for the long term, not just the immediate yield. But it's still the system of managing that factory from the outside. And what isn't incorporated yet, as much as I believe it could be, is what the plants themselves could be doing uh, on their own, with a little of assistance, I should say. And so that's this different perspective, and I'll, let's just call it an ecological perspective. And what I mean by that is viewing plants as individuals, because plants are individuals. Uh, it, if we think about why a plant exists, it exists because its parents existed and produced offspring that made it, and their parents existed and go on back in time as much as you want. It figured out a way to win. It produced babies that made it to the next generation. This is the essence of what we mean by selection and evolution. It worked for those systems, which means that these individuals and their kin through time solved the problems of life. They solved how to find food. They solved how to deal with enemies. They solved all of these things. The prioritization of how a plant allocates energy, do I make more babies, more, more fruits, or do I make more roots or more shoots, that's going to be determined by the effects on the fitness of that plant. If making more roots lets me make more babies, that plant's going to allocate that energy to roots. If instead more flowers make more babies, it's going to make more flowers. This process is not fast in the sense that it happens over the course of a season. It happens over the course of years, decades, and centuries, or even millennia. And so this presents an interesting opportunity. We recognize that plants can do these things that we want them to do, but the conflict arises when we recognize that it's slow. And so if we just wait for the plant to be a plant and produce the yield, nobody's going to be a farmer for very long. It just doesn't work. And so what we need to try to find a way uh, to move this forward is to merge these two perspectives. We need to be able to merge the perspective of using the biology of the plant to enhance your desired goals, but at the same time recognizing that not everything that a plant does has no value. And we shouldn't assume we have to fix every problem. If some of the natural biology of the plant might not look the same as what we're used to, but could be very effective in yield. And this is going to be our core problem. We just don't understand what's going on. And I have no problem saying that as a scientist, and my colleagues don't do either. We're only now beginning to actually realize how little we know about plants, which, again, are the foundation of society. We just haven't figured out how they work. And this is even before we get at the complexity of the soil communities and the details of the fungi and bacteria and nematodes and everything else in these things. And so I'm going to talk a bit first about just the nutrient foraging side, and then I'm going to talk a bit more about mycorrhiza. And I'm probably going to talk about mycorrhiza from a perspective you're not used to. Uh, but I'm going to foreshadow where I'm going, which is straight off, mycorrhiza are parasites. And on average, fungi hurt plants. Sometimes they're awesome, and plant growth goes way up. But more often than not, fungi hurt plants. Now I'm going to show you some data, and I'm going to explain some biology behind that. And I know that's not what you're always hearing, but the science behind it's pretty strong. And there's potential here. So let me come to that. So same general question as before. Can understanding how plants behavior or how they behave as individuals offer insights for agricultural production? Uh, and I'm going to try to make more direct links to potential applications for production throughout the talk rather than I did yesterday, um, which may be off base, but it's, it's my first attempt. So nutrition, so from a plant's perspective again. So we're focusing on this organism which needs food. And there are four main steps in nutrition of any organism. The first ten step tends to be that organism has to have some ability to assess its, its condition. What I mean by that is 
Is it nutrient starved? It doesn't have a lot of uh, nutrients. Is it carbon poor? Is it shaded? What's the health of that organism? Plants do this. Plants do have systems that give them a sense of internal nutrient balance, internal carbon balance. They do alter future growth based upon their nutrient needs. So it's not as simple as saying we have low nitrogen soil, so we're going to add some nitrate. The plants are also going to make adjustments in response to being in soil with low nitrogen. Those adjustments may or may not increase yield, but they're very likely to increase the fitness of the plant, which what we want to do is try to bring those two things together. So first they assess the condition, because that essentially tells them what their choices are going to be. Am I starving, not starving? They then have to occupy the habitat. And what's going to be important here is uh, thinking about the scale that we're talking about. If you have 3,000 acres, that's your scale of your operation. It's, it's pretty darn big, and it's a heck of a lot bigger than any individual plant. It may even be bigger than just one crop that you have. You have different crops in different places or different times. But that scale is really important for your bottom line. It's completely irrelevant to the plants. The scale that matters for the nutrition of the plant is the volume of soil that its roots have the potential to reach. That might be 20 centimeters from the stem. It might be a meter from the stem. It depends on your crop and how big it is. But we can imagine around every plant, there's this habitat that it can occupy. Within that habitat, the plant has to find the food. And for plants to take this up, they actually have to grow a root in that place, more or less. We know there's diffusion and, and uptake. But more or less, they have to have a root or a fungal hyphae near that nutrient. So they actually have to make a permanent investment in where they put their body to get food. And this is fundamentally different than how most animals forage. So my wife does a lot of research with bears and cougars and all these other uh, really mobile animals. And they're really simple to study. She doesn't like it when I tell her her research animal organisms are simple. They only have one mouth. Like if you want to understand how does a cougar eat, all you have to do is capture the cougar, tranquilize it, um, and follow it with a GPS collar, sit at your computer with some coffee, and you get all the data coming in. Easy. This is a little sunflower plant that's about eight weeks old, and it's going to have hundreds and hundreds of meters of roots, just as a little baby. If we look at a more mature plant, it's going to have 10,000 mouths, maybe 100,000 mouths of those root tips. And so if we want to understand how a plant actually occupies that habitat in the context of food, we have to recognize it doesn't move as a whole. Each individual root tip has the potential to make its own decision, which means in different parts of that habitat, that same plant can be making different choices at the same time. The sum of those choices is your yield. And so this lets plants make really fine decisions at a very small scale, the millimeter scale in that soil based on local conditions. And then obviously they allocate resources that they've taken up in relation to that initial issue of condition. So the core plant biology component that allows plants to make root decisions is what we call plasticity. So plasticity is that an organism can take different forms. It could grow a root or not grow a root. It could grow a short root or a long root. It could grow 10 roots or one root. The information it uses is in the soil. It's how much nitrate is there typically, or it could be sometimes phosphorus. How much water? Are there pests? Are there uh, mutualists? Are there mycorrhiza? Has it been attacked? Each root tip assesses the local conditions and makes a decision. So you can have 10,000 different decisions happening at that really fine scale, which means in your system, if your nutrients are really patchy at the small scale, so you've got this residue, and if you end up having patches of high nutrient release here and 30 centimeters away, low nutrient release, those plants are assessing those differences. And so across your whole 3,000 acres, might not look like a big deal, it looks pretty even. At the individual plant level, you're either creating choices or not. The impact of those choices for yield, we don't know. 
and it's going to depend on whether that plant is able to make good decisions or not. We'll rejoin JC's conversation about plant nutrition and behavior in a moment, but I'd like to thank Yitter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yitter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From any different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer, and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yutter delivers a return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yutterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to J.C. Cahill as he discusses how plants interact with nutrients in their environment and how different plant species have the ability to make smart choices in that endeavor. He'll also cover competition and how plants respond to neighboring plants and the implications for growth and production. A consequence of this is that root systems in the wild, and I'm going to include no-till system as wild, are almost never circular. The only time you're going to find a circular root system is if you have growing them in water, so it's complete even distribution of nutrients, or a completely tilled field with no organic matter and no spatial variation, where there's nothing to assess. In your systems, plant root systems are not going to be circular, and that has big impacts for nutrient uptake, runoff, and competition, weed suppression. This is a classic study here where uh, the researcher put nutrients in three different vertical levels in pots. This was actually hydroponics. And this is just, again, showing that the plant proliferates roots where the nutrients are. This is, again, plants aren't dumb. You don't feed where there's no food. We call this precision. So how well is the plant able to concentrate its roots where the food is? And on average, we're going to expect about a 50% precision. That means you more or less grow roots at random if they have even amounts of nutrients in the area. This is a review uh, that I published out of my lab of 100 and something different plants. And again, the most important thing is that almost every plant species ever tested has the ability to make these decisions. Almost every plant tested will put more roots where the nutrients are than not. That's good news for you. That means if you put your nutrients out, there's a good chance plants are going to put their roots there. One of the important components of this is what this means is if you spread nutrients out completely evenly, you're forcing the plants to grow roots over that entire soil volume. If your nutrients instead come in patches, you're letting them capture those nutrients with less investment on roots. That probably is important. But again, not every plant's the same. Some plants actually avoid high nutrient areas, but these are very rare. But the more concerning is that many monocots, or, or grasses, or grains, are less able to make good decisions than many broadleaves. Most of our big weeds are broadleaved. Not all, but most. And obviously, lots of our important crops are down here. That said, corn does this. Barley does this. Wheat does this. So we know those crops specifically concentrate roots. Soybean is really good. Beans in general, this. And sunflower is probably the smartest plant I've ever tested. So the plants that most of you grow do have some of this potential. Interestingly, I just read a study just this week. Uh, it looks as though the breeding in barley has actually reduced the ability of plants to find the food. So the wild ancestors of barley are better able to find nutrient patches than the cultivars that you, or the varieties that you can buy and put on your land. So breeding is impacting the biology of these organisms. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the, so the question in the back was, is a potential explanation for that that the breeding programs tend to focus on above-ground characteristics uh, than below-ground characteristics? And that most likely is it, as well as most conventional breeding programs are using 
high input standard pra uh, cultivation practices, which doesn't really reward plants for being efficient because they've taken that out through their input system. And so we, they're never challenged to be efficient in their growth, and so they're not selected for that. And if there's a cost to the ability to behave, that gets selected against. Exactly. So the consequences of this are important when we think now, not just of your individual plant, but a neighborhood. So I feel a little bad telling you what I did here, but these are actually, this is a neighborhood, this is about a meter squared of velvet leaf. So, you know, so it was, I love velvet leaf. It's a great plant to work with. Um, it's another really, really smart one, and I, I, I'm guessing nobody here has ever intentionally planted a crop of velvet leaf other than me. Uh, but, what, but, but I did that, um, and I had two main treatments. I put nutrients evenly or homogenous in the soil, or I concentrate them in four patches. And what I wanted to know is how did the distribution of these nutrients impact where the plants put their roots at the population level, more like a stand. And rather than following individual nutrients with radioisotopes, I used strontium and rubidium, which aren't important for the plants, except they go up uh, other uptake sites. So they're just markers for the plants. And I could ask the question, which plants, when I did tissue analysis of every plant in these populations, which plants had elevated rubidium or strontium? And that told me where they had their roots. When I had nutrients spread evenly, these shaded ones represent those that had elevated strontium. And the only ones that had elevated strontium were those that were grown right next to where I put the strontium. It was just telling us that these plants ignored this part of the soil. They kept to themselves. Similar results for rubidium. But when I put nutrients in these patches, not just these tracers, everything changed. As soon as I had a patch of strontium here, we actually found plants from far away with elevated strontium telling us they put their roots here. Our rubidium patches, plants up here, move their roots down here too. So once the nutrients get patchy, you start having more plants potentially interact with each other from further away. That's potentially good because that's telling you plants from far away are going to access where you put your food. It's potentially bad. Yes, sir. This is <laughs> this field, uh, 72 centimeters. Uh, so sorry, so I'm in I'm in the U.S. Uh, two feet ish, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something like that. Uh, very small field, uh, but I had lots of these. So. Uh, so the, the, again, the point here is by moving the nutrients into patches or spreading them out, you're actually changing who interacts with who. That's competition or potential for competition. You might be increasing or decreasing competitive dynamics. And so from this basic part, there's some questions that I think are probably pretty important to be thinking about in the context of production. So first of all, if you have increased soil complexity, I'm talking here about nutrients, but it could also be compaction. It, it could be rocks. It could be whatever you're actually increasing the potential for plants to make choice. If you have reason to believe that your plants are smart and able to make good choice, then giving them more choice in the field is likely to benefit them. If you think your plants are dumb or the weeds you have are smarter, you don't want a lot of choice in your system. You want to force the plant in a certain direction. This is where a lot of the research is going. When nutrients are concentrated in patches, more plants go after them or grow roots in them which has the potential for more competition. Or it means more of your crop is able to access the nutrients in smaller area. The impacts on yield aren't known, but it should change it. Sometimes up, sometimes down. Banding application of fertilizer is a classic way, a classic management tool which simulates, this creates the soil heterogeneity. And it's known that corn, corn and other plants respond very differently to banded versus non-banded in the context of root growth. I mentioned yesterday, and I'll say again, plants respond not only to nutrients, but also to neighbors uh, in a very significant way. This is a, a study from uh, Br Brisson in early 90s, and this was a horrible thing to do to students, but he went out into the desert, and this is creosote bush, uh, and he had a bunch of undergrads excavate a population of creosote, the roots. Uh, here's the scale. This is about a meter, so this is probably about five to five to 10 meters or so on a side. And so we had an army of students go out and carefully extract the soil from the roots so he could actually map the root systems. Because what he wanted to know is what actually do root systems look like in neighbors uh, in wild relative to neighbors. And what you get is this big mess, but you can clean it up with some stats and you make a bunch of polygons. 
And so these polygons represent more or less the shape of the root system of each individual plant that he had in this small patch. These shaded areas represent the locations where there was significant overlap among root systems. What you should see here is there's very little overlap. In this system, only 4% of that area actually was occupied more by more than one plant. So creosote bush, by using these non-circular rooting patterns, reduced competition with each other. This is likely a lilopathic in cause, but it's also likely that the plants evolved the ability to avoid each other rather than just to suppress each other. How much this is happening on crop plants is, is just not known. And I'll talk about some comparative studies showing, though, that this idea of avoidance is out there. But let me explain what I'm looking at here. This is, uh, I talked yesterday about this idea that one of the things that plants can do in response to the roots of another plant is attack them, over-proliferate. So just like they proliferate roots where there's nutrients, some plants have the potential to proliferate roots when they sense another plant's roots. So they get hyper-aggressive. The important bit of what happens when this is going to be on these graphs, this is actually bean. Um, and on our x-axis here is the amount of root biomass in, our, in the experimental plots. And the y-axis is going to be seed mass, so how much seeds were produced. And so the relationship is going to be the amount of seed per unit root the plant had to make. So we can think about the efficiency of seed production relative to investment in roots. For yield, you want that number to be high. You want as much seed per unit root, because you're not selling the roots. You want as much uh, seed per root as you can get. This line represents the yield when plants are grown alone. This is the yield when plants are grown with a competitor in two different experiments, the same result. What this is telling us is that in response to competition, the plants are overproducing roots to fight. The consequence of that is they're underproducing seed. So that investment to deal with the competitor is coming at a direct cost. This was called the tragedy of the commons, this idea that these plants would actually have higher fitness if they avoided each other. But they don't. These plants just do this. This was a very controversial study when it came out within the science world because it's just not what we thought was going to be going on. And so I and a bunch of other people repeated this. This is a complicated graph, and I'm going to make it super simple. This is something I published from my lab where we use these window boxes and imaging to visually observe root growth with neighbors or not with neighbors um, for 20-something different species. And I just wanted to ask this question, how often do species attack each other versus run away? So what's, what should we expect? Any bars up here represent species which grew towards a competitor. Down here, species which ran away. These are species which actually increase overall investment. So these are actually lateral movement. These are increased root biomass, decreased root biomass. The short of this is it's a big mess. When we look at a lot of different species, everything happens. Uh, how did I measure this? I said, I said Pamela, <laughs> I think this is a good idea. How about you go spend two years by the computer and do this? Um, <coughs> and so what we actually did in this particular study is we created window boxes, the plexiglass. So again, we just made it up. Uh, and we used repeated photography so we could actually non-destructively measure roots through time so we could see actually the development of the root systems. Uh, and then she, by hand, traced the roots of every plant every 48 hours, I think it was. Uh, and we threw that into some uh, GIS software and did some fancy statistical stuff. Uh, and then, because that wasn't enough, uh, we pulled out all the soil, the roots, and dried it and weighted as well. So we did the whole, the whole package there. There's a fair bit of work behind some of these slides. Uh, and we haven't used many crops uh, in our specific studies yet. We, this one's intentionally wild grassland plants, which are not bad parallels. Uh, we're not seeing many trends by any conventional characteristics. Monocot versus dicot doesn't matter. Closely related to your competitor versus, versus a complete stranger doesn't matter. We're trying to figure that out. In fact, that's an active area uh, in the lab right now, is can we understand what characteristics m or make certain plants more likely to do one thing than another? 
but we just don't know. Yeah. I won't talk about kin selection. I talked about that before. Uh, the implications here, though, are obvious. Uh, your yields are determined by competition in large part. Uh, if your crop plants are competing with each other, your yields go down. If your crop plants are not competing well against your weeds, your yields go down. Uh, if you have effective contest with the weeds and crops, if your crops get an advantage, you have weed suppression. Your input costs likely go down. And so the outcomes of competition have direct consequences for the on-farm economics. Uh, the problem, again, is it's not clear who's going to win or lose. And I would encourage you not to believe anyone who says it's easily predictable that there's a winner and loser. It's going to depend, again, on how that plant assesses those conditions, as well as what species are involved. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you asking how you can improve soil biological activity and soil health on your farm operation, you'll be sure to pick up helpful tips and information at the 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference coming up January 8th through the 11th, 2019 in Indianapolis. The full conference program for this one-of-a-kind event has just been released. So please go to www.notillconference.com to download the program and see what actionable no-till management strategies our speakers will bring to the table in January. Through December 31st, 2018, register for North America's premier no-till learning event for just $339 and register additional farm and family members for just $312. After December 31st, the on-site registration rate of $389 will apply. So secure your spot now and save $50 off the higher rate. You can register for our conference by going to notillconference.com or call 262-432-0388. Now we'll conclude this podcast as J.C. Cahill shares some important information about mycorrhizae and the role they play in plant nutrition and health and some perhaps surprising information about the types of mycorrhizae that are helpful or not helpful and the different situations that can affect those outcomes. What I want to talk for the last bit here, last uh, 10 minutes or so, are, are mycorrhizae and what we call plant soil feedbacks. Uh, I've heard an awful lot about mycorrhizae. I'm sure everybody has heard an awful lot of mycorrhizae from lots of people. And Many of you may or may not know this, but there's more than one type of mycorrhizae. And I'm not just talking about species. I actually mean whole major ways of forming these associations with plants. The ones that are important for crops, almost all crops that form mycorrhizae, form what are called arbuscular mycorrhizal, uh, or associations with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And what's important is that those associations are inside the root. Okay. So that root, that fungi, penetrates the root and it does its business inside the cells of the plant. It then grows hyphae through the soil for nutrient exchange. The other major class are ectomycorrhizal fungi. These are our morel mushrooms and all of those other, other lovely mushrooms that we might eat. These are the dominant types of fungi for conifers, for your firs, your, your pines, your spruce. And the big difference of ectos is that they form these associations on the outside of the roots, not the inside. There's other nuanced differences here that aren't really re aren't relevant to almost any agriculture, except blueberries have ericoid. Um, and this difference is critical, because there's all sorts of impacts on plants. And I'll say straight off, most of the studies showing benefits of mycorrhizae to plant growth are ectomycorrhizal. Almost always, ectomycorrhizae help the plants. Our buscular mycorrhizal fungi are way more variable. And it depends on a lot of things. We actually talk about a continuum from parasite to mutualism, where mutualism is win-win, parasite is bad news for the plant. We don't view mycorrhizae in our buscular systems as a win-win. We view it as a, rain, a spectrum from parasitic to win-win, depending on lots of things. And so I'd encourage you to be very cautious 
about any information you're hearing saying that mycorrhizae are necessarily good for plants. So uh, before I get to some of that data, uh, if we look at what's out there, most plant species form arbuscular mycorrhizae, uh, uh, arbuscular mycorrhiza, uh, but there aren't a lot of fungal species that do it. So most of these fun fungal species are pretty generalist. They can host, uh, join lots of plants. And if we look at the benefits to the plant, this is, uh, this is actually ectos, but the same data is for arbuscular. Here's just looking at nitrogen content. Um, and these are different species of fungi, all on the same host type of plant species. What I want you to see is that these bars aren't the same. What this is telling you is the amount of fertility of your plant dependent on which specific fungal species infected that plant. So the mycorrhiza, those fungi, are individuals too. And they have their own fitness and their own selection. We call this the life dinner principle, where if we think about our fungus and our plant, if that plant doesn't join with a fungus, that plant missed dinner. No big deal. It's going to be hungry. It's not going to die. Our buscular mycorrhizal fungi cannot survive if they don't infect a plant. They die. So if that fungus doesn't infect a plant, it, it's dead. Ectos are different. But now let's think about what should happen over time. You miss dinner, no big deal. You don't really need to change your life too much to make sure you never skip a meal. It won't hurt you that much. And so the selection to prevent infection by the less good mycorrhizae, probably not so big, because it's not that big a deal. But if you're the fungus and you can't infect a host, you die out which means there's really strong selection for those fungi to get in the roots, no matter what they do to the plant. Because if they don't succeed, the fungus dies out through evolution. And so there's this imbalance of pressures, where there's a lot of pressure on these fungi always getting into the plant, even if the plant doesn't need them. In addition to fungi being different directly on the plants, there's lots of data, and this is just some, looking at the diversity of mycorrhizal fungi that an individual plant has in its roots versus different aspects of production, phosphorus or shoot root mass, and tons of different examples and tons of different systems giving more or less the same results. That plants perform better when they're exposed to a diversity of fungi, which means if you add a single fungi to a system, that may cause a lower yield than a naturally diverse system. How do you get naturally diverse mycorrhizal systems? You do what a lot of you are doing. You grow a diversity of crops at a diversity of times. You don't sterilize the soil intentionally or otherwise. You allow for that diversity in the system, which in part allows the plants to make some choices in these associations. So be very cautious, I would suggest, about doing anything to the soil which reduces the diversity of mycorrhizae. So, so let me keep going on mycorrhizae. Again, not all mycorrhizae are equal, and I actually want to show some of the data in response, uh, following up on the question. But this increased diversity of fungi in the soil, uh, we call this a portfolio effect or a portfolio average. If we know that some fungi are good at some times and probably not so good at other times, if you have a diversified portfolio of those fungi in the soil, there's more of a chance the plant is going to be able to make the good associations when it needs it. If you've simplified your portfolio to a single species, the plant's not given any choice if conditions change in the fungi. Not all fungi do well with drought. Not all fungi do with a lot of water. So this is the, uh, the important type of uh, slide that I want to show. Uh, and there are tons of slides like this. This is looking at mycorrhizal dependence, which the way the authors measured this one is simple. You take a couple plants, grow one in sterilized soil, you put the other one in pots that have a, a spores of a given uh, mycorrhizal community or species. These refer to different plants. This is, I think, 13 different species, all from a grassland community. This just got published uh, a couple months ago. And what we're looking at is plants above zero grew better with mycorrhiza. Plants below zero were parasitized. 
So in this random sampling of 13 plants or so, about half of the plants actually were parasitized by the beneficial mycorrhiza in that system. And there are tons and tons of other graphs to show this. And the important thing I'm trying to say here is not that mycorrhizae don't help plants. They do, just not all of them and not under all conditions. And so if we can figure out what makes a plant to be up here, those are the ones we want to make sure we're adding their amendments or they're in the soil. But if you have plants here, you sure as heck don't want to be paying $5 per acre to throw on a parasite. That's just a bad investment. So what's going on underneath this? This is the same data, uh, same study. Again, the same plant species. We're now looking at investment on the plant side. And it can invest for nutrients in two ways. It can grow roots or it can grow fungi. The solid colors represent how much surface area do these plants grow in roots. And the colored areas represent how much hyphal length did they support. Or, or surface area. And what you can see is that the relative ratio of the white to solid varies among species. Some species invest about half as much in fungal growth as they do in root growth. Other species have almost no fungal growth. And so different plants support different amounts of mycorrhiza. And if we look then at the benefits, so these plants benefited from mycorrhizae versus parasitized versus investment, we can actually see that plants aren't horribly dumb here. Those plants, which are really dependent, also fed the mycorrhizae very well. Those plants that were more likely parasitized starved the mycorrhizae a bit. They still got parasitized, but they weren't feeding them as much as they could. So we have this really complicated interaction between the plant and the fungi related to uh, growing. If we look at it a different way, how much of mycorrhizae were supported by the plant, lots of mycorrhizae, very little, versus the N to P ratio, nitrogen to phosphorus ratios of the plant, they actually did find a pattern emerging. Those plants that were really rich in nitrogen relative to phosphorus supported less hyphal growth than the nitrogen poor plants. And so what this means, not really sure. Uh, again, this is only a couple months old, so what, how this is going to impact things, nobody knows. But it is suggesting there are probably some predictable patterns that are going to emerge from these sorts of data, trying to understand the when. The last little bit I want to talk about is really related, which is called plant soil feedbacks. So I don't know if you're familiar, it's a genuine question. Have people heard the term plant soil feedbacks? Yeah? Okay. A little bit. This is the idea that the plants put in exudates into the soil. They put in chemicals. Those chemicals change the microbes in that soil. Those microbes then change the plant. We call this a feedback system. It's the same as microbiomes in the gut. These are all feedback systems. A positive one means that the plant invests in a microbial community. It farms its fungi. It farms the bacteria to develop a living soil which enhances its future growth. We want that. right? We want plants which invest in the right species in the soil so that next year the plants will do even better. That's good news. But there's also the potential for negative feedback. And what the potential here for negative feedback is that the investments the plant puts into the soil actually benefit pathogens better than the plants, uh, better than the ones that help the plant. And so the next year the plants are going to get harmed based on the investments the plant made. That's a negative feedback system. So, basic question. What do you think is more common? A positive or negative feedback? Who sense, says more often than not, we find positive feedbacks among plants? Who says negative? Okay, well you guys are about as split as the actual data, so there we go. <laughs> so, zero means no feedback. This is a review of 100 and something studies. On average, Plants cultivate bad things. Sometimes plants cultivate really good things. But on average, their growth enhances pathogens more than benefit, beneficial plants. This is hugely important for everything you guys do. It's hugely important for me and my general biodiversity studies. This is big news. And more and more is coming out right now. It appears actually this is even more common 
in arbuscular systems than ectomycorrhizal systems. In other words, cropland systems. They're more likely to be negative. Here's one specific study. This is by Kurt Reinhardt at USDA. Um, and this is a nice study where he had uh, three different grassland sites, and he tested for feedbacks. Plant, this is just stands for plant soil fe feedbacks uh, in three different locations. Uh, and the way you do it, I won't get into the methods. It's fairly straightforward to do this. This is a really beautiful study that he did. And red means that for a given plant, it caused a negative feedback. So in all three locations, you can see there's a lot of red as opposed to blue, meaning it cultivated a positive feedback. So again, in, this is in the field, not in the greenhouse. You have these negative feedback systems being more common than not. But importantly, the blue happens. And so the whole point of using what we can see from these natural systems for crop development is figuring out why sometimes you get the positive ones and enhancing those characteristics. It's okay that negative is more common, we just make sure we don't want to make it more negative. Yeah, so the, the question, well, or the comment was, if this is a natural trend, why aren't those plants ex extinct? And we actually think that this is a major mechanism that prevents extinction because what happens is once a plant grows, it starts to kill itself, which lets another plant in, but all the other plants are killing themselves in other places, and so all these species just keep moving around because they're not able to persist and be dominant forever. In other words, a natural decay of a pasture. I do a lot with brome grass. Uh, this is what happens. It accumulates pathogens and the, the pasture dies out. Uh, it just can't persist in these systems because of these sorts of processes. It's autotoxic. That's exactly a great way of putting it. And so one of the, it's, it's one of the reasons, and there's other components to rotation that are really beneficial, but you're absolutely right. Uh, in the absence of a rotational type system, you allow for feedbacks to become stronger. And if they tend to be negative, that's bad news. If feedbacks tended to be positive, you guys wouldn't be rotating, right? You, you would know that once you put corn in, keep it for 100 years, and you guys are all happy. Uh, and so you, you, you've seen this without having the science before, just based on the experience of you and your family over time. One of the things that seems to be able to cause this to switch is light. And it appears that when plants are actually low, under low light, they're going to make better investments for a positive feedback. When they're under high light, the thinking is so much sugar is going down into those roots that those pathogens are taking advantage of it. And so I think this is probably relevant for cover crops and a lot of what you do in your, your, your no-till systems where those plants in that sub-canopy are obviously under low light for some point in time. They're not sending as much sugar to the fungi. And so there's the potential that they're going to make a more positive feedback loop. Is that true? We don't know. But it's um, hopeful in terms of some of these impacts on these systems, particularly if we can get weeds making a negative feedback for themselves. The studies that just came out today are uh, emphasizing this idea of what causes negative feedbacks. And one of the important points that's beginning to get made is we need to look beyond the idea of mycorrhizae just for phosphorus nutrition. One of the big benefits of mycorrhizae, particularly arbuscular mycorrhiza, is protection from pathogens. The idea is if your roots are filled with a, a fungus that's a little bit of a parasite, it's not going to be filled with a fungus that's a really big parasite. There's just not enough space. Another benefit that's coming out is water. Mycorrhizae can be very important for water dynamics, too, and water uptake. And so the short of all of that is these living soils are exceptionally complicated. Our understanding of the natural history, the natural science, is just at the surface. Uh, we, we can't identify to species most of the things in the soil. All we have are DNA sequences. We know nothing, really, about how most of these things live. And I, I, I suppose I'm just an overly cautious person, but it sure makes me nervous to make management decisions when there's so much uncertainty out there right now. In fact, I was joking before, but I actually tell my students in my classes, you know, if there's one thing that I want you to remember from my third year plant class, it's I want you to remember to tell your mom not to go to the garden store and add an inoculum of mycorrhizae to her garden. That's the only thing 
I want you to take home because I feel so certain of that one. Because if you're picking a species at random, unless you've done your field test, there's a really good chance you're adding a parasite. There's a chance you're adding a beneficial thing too, and that would be awesome and you want to know that. But don't assume the match is good unless you've run your trial. Because the science says most matches are going to be bad, but some can be really good. So I like to think that this uncertainty is great opportunity. At least it's great opportunity for people whose jobs, like me, are I can't get fired and I live in uncertainty. So it's good news for me. Uh, but it's also a great opportunity because we need another agricultural revolution. And it's not going to come from growing shorter plants. It's going to come from finding new things and just a new way of understanding. So this is being integrated into breeding. I know that for certain, and I know more of that's coming. And I think that the future of farming is going to look really different, just like the past of farming looked very different as well. We'd sincerely like to thank J.C. Cahill, experimental plant ecologist, for sharing some fascinating insights on the world of plant behavior and plant nutrition, and how field conditions and management choices by farmers can impact crop production. For listeners who'd like to hear more about successful no-till strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Gitter Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For J.C. Cahill and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening.